Welcome to This Creative Life Radio. I'm Felicia O'Connor. Creative women all over the world are unblocking and recovering their creative journey while they rewrite the rules for creative success. Join me as I explore the lives of people engaged in successful creative work and unlock helpful tips that leave you inspired and ready to create. Welcome back to my podcast called This Creative Life. I'm Felicity O'Connor. I'm an artist, I'm a psychologist, and the work I'm passionate about is mentoring artists and particularly female artists uh, in that space because I think, well, if we don't look after our female artists, statistically they're really going to struggle. So I'm particularly interested in talking to people about that, um, talking to people about how to manage business, art and business, and some artists, of course, find that that whole business thing isn't a comfortable space for them and yet of course they are in small business so that can be a bit of an interesting thing to talk about so this podcast is an unscripted podcast i believe we usually have enough creativity in our guests here to just roll with it and today i'm delighted to introduce a very highly creative and interesting person monica davison is our guest on the podcast today and monica is the director of creative plus business group um, she's going to tell us what that does who that is who she is uh what she does and uh we've got some really interesting areas to look into today particularly i think around gender equity is, is a thing i'd really like to to talk to monica about so monica welcome to the podcast thank you for having me Pleasure, pleasure. We've spoken before and on several occasions and we've met and um, I'm always interested in hearing your views on things. You seem to have an amazing amount of knowledge about things in the creative kind of business space. But like, first thing... I'm old. I've been oh, putting yeah, stuff okay. in my brain for a long time. I want to just, just like dive in the deep end. Um, why, why is gender equity in the arts important well the arts to put that lovely big sort of general um umbrella term on it our job in the arts is to tell the stories of our culture and our people and our society whether you're telling that story through a book or a play or a movie or a digital platform or a piece of artwork that's essentially our job, you know, and that's kind of like the big wank, but it's also true that we, we are the keepers of the stories, the tellers of the stories. And if we're not telling everybody's story, then we're not doing a good enough job. I just don't think that the stories of our culture and our society can be summed up by the voices of middle-class heterosexual white men for I do not feel that they are representative of all of our voices and all of our stories. So gender equity, like any aspect of diversity, is really just about making sure that everybody's story is told by the person who is appropriate to tell it. Right. You only employ women. Yes, when I can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does a bit. Um, <laughs> just a bit. I mean, I'm, in, I'm fortunate in that I run a small business despite our very, very fancy group title. It is still a relatively small business. And so I implement gender equity um, in my own way, which is to favour the employment of women. So I do hire some men um, and, you know, that's, 
I do try to maintain a meritocracy when best I can, but I'm obsessed with questioning the meritocracy and I've spent a lot of time talking and writing about this idea of merit. Uh, and so in my own business, when it comes to establishing merit, I look at women first. If a qualified woman is available to me, then I will hire her. If there are no qualified women available, then I'll look elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it being biased? Yeah, absolutely. Totally biased. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Gender bias has existed in business forever. Quotas have existed in business forever. It's just we've never named it. The gender bias and the quota has always favoured men. So, you know, men have been getting jobs primarily because they're men since the beginning of work. So... I don't think there's anything wrong with putting a bias in favour of women. And I appreciate that there are obviously, you know, legal and, you know, kind of social ramifications around that. But for a business of my size, I'm allowed to, you know, and I don't actively recruit in that way. I don't say I've got a job available and it can only be, you know, given to a woman. Although in terms of affirmative action, that wouldn't be a problem. I just always make sure that people know I'm looking for a woman first. You know? mm-hmm. And the men who work for me, and there are a few, are fine and happy about that, you know, because they live, they're working in a gender, in a, a female-led working environment. Um, you know, we operate under, you know, to put a point on it, matriarchal systems, right. if you really want to go there. And, okay. you know, that, that tends to benefit everybody. As I always say, you know, the patriarchy sucks for everybody, including men. So, you know, I'm in a fortunate position to be, you know, running my own business. And so I can, you know, create the culture that I want. And that's the culture that I want. Fascinating. Wow. I love just diving deep in straight away. With oh, we'll just get, let's just right in, get right in there. Why not? <laughs> Absolutely. You better, tell, you better tell our audience what the business is. I mean, we, we said you were the director of the Creative Plus Business Group, but what, what does it do? Uh, what, what are these people that work for you, the women and the men? What do they do? What's the role? So Creative Plus Business Group is a, a re- reasonably small organisation, although we have quadrupled in size in the last two years. So I think we're, wow. <laughs> things are going well. Um, our primary focus is on helping creative people just to get better at their business skills. So really that kind of is in the form of education and that education is facilitated through a few different means. So we obviously run workshops. We're also developing a series of online courses and webinars Uh, we also provide tailored um, and targeted one-on-one advice business advice for creative practitioners Mm -hmm. um, as well as other things I do a lot of guest lecturing at creative institutions and behind the scenes I also do a lot of consulting work helping councils and you know larger organizations to help creative people get better at business. That's basically all we do because creative people, creative practitioners generally have had little or no business training Mm. and yet think that they're stupid, quote unquote, because they don't know anything about business Mm. to which I always say, well, of course you don't know anything about business. You've never been taught. 
Right. Why would you expect that? You would just naturally know that stuff. Like, there is no way that you would naturally know this stuff. You know, you're not right. stupid. You're just, you know, you have, there's a gap in your knowledge and that's what we do to fill it. So that education sort of manifests itself in lots of ways. And we're really um, fortunate and we've worked very hard to be able to make sure that most of the services that we provide are free or inexpensive to practitioners. So we don't ask practitioners to carry the heavy cost of that. Almost everything we do here, you can access for nothing or, you know, for a couple of hundred bucks at the most. And having, having done one of those free educational sessions with you, um, you were generous enough to share with me when I was doing an exhibition in Belmay in Sydney. I mean, I just, it was fantastic. I got so much out of it, so I can recommend that from that point of view. Um, oh, that's awesome. So, uh, it, please, yeah. please don't recommend it too much because we're actually at capacity. We've had to. Oh, okay. um, well, I won't mention it. To, unfortunately, um, we had to put a hold on new clients at the end wow. of last year. Wow. We've just been able to secure some more funding to open up our books again. Um, but yeah, the demand for the our services is just through the roof, and that's indicative of, I think. Um, people feeling more confident that their creative practice is actually a business and mm. also just the understanding that if you do want to be a creative practitioner for a living, chances mm. are you're not going to get a job for life. So mm. even just a modicum of understanding about just how to be freelance in the arts is a good mm. start. I mean, you know, what, why, what's an ABN and why do I need one? And, you know, what's, do I need a business name and, yeah, how come Facebook doesn't work? I mean, these are all the questions that we answer every day. Okay, so it's really sort of grassroots stuff about, you know, basic kind of business questions yeah. and all of that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, and we do also help more advanced businesses. So my, my other two advisors um, are amazing and uh, they tend to work more with the startups and the early stage freelancers. But because I've been doing this for 30 years, I work with the larger organisations and the more established businesses and practitioners because they have different problems. They have, mm. like I always say, they have much more interesting problems um, <laughs> and problems that they're totally unprepared for. So my, I, I'm generally helping people to cope with success um, mm-hmm. which doesn't sound like something that you would need to cope with, but it is a thing. Oh, yeah, uh, and the other, the other aspect of our business is that um, regardless of whom I'm hiring, whether they be male or female, everybody who works here, even our 18-year-old admin assistant, everybody who works here has a creative profession as well. And right. we essentially job share between their work here and their Um, creative practice because we can't have people working as creative industries advisors or assistants if they don't actually have any um, personal understanding of practice. Well that's really interesting because I think that speaks to um, perhaps a dilemma for many creative people I see where they're kind of I'm not sure I can make a living out of my creative work so I'm either working another full-time job or part-time job or I'm trying to shift from work into creative life and make a living from that. Um, So, I mean, my own views on that, it's perfectly okay to have some other paid work and if that paid work can be related to your creative sort of space, then that's even better Um, rather than putting all the the pressure on your creative work, being the one that has has to pay the rent. Um, Yeah, well, everybody does it. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what's your thoughts about that? I mean, do you speak to a lot of, let's say, artists um, who have a dream to make an, a full income from their practice and do you think that's possible? It is for some, uh, but, you know, for me, the word practice incorporates all aspects of your practice. So if you're a visual artist, for example, that isn't just the paint on the canvas. Mm. Uh, To go back to my earlier point, that's the story that you're trying to tell. And you can tell that story in lots of ways. You can tell that story through paint on canvas. You can tell that story through teaching. You can tell that story from reviewing other people's work, you know, you can tell that story in a myriad of ways. And I I think that artists and creative practitioners can really put a lot of limits on themselves and can judge themselves very harshly about whether or not they get to call themselves an artist based on how much money they're making out of it. Now, I don't think that that's a relevant measurement because you you can't control the market. Mm -hmm. It's, It's just pure clean economics we don't get to control the marketplace the marketplace is controlled by a thousand different influences most of which we have no control over so if you are making art that the marketplace doesn't want then there's absolutely no way that you're going to be able to pay your rent with it now that doesn't mean you should stop in fact the really important thing about what we do for most of us is that part of our job I think is to challenge what the market wants and to be innovative and different and exciting about things and to make work that doesn't necessarily have a marketplace yet so we should under no circumstances stop making that kind of work that's a really important part of our job we just have to have reasonable expectations of whether or not that can pay the rent so you know if you're a practicing artist making work that tells your story that perhaps challenges the boundaries of what people want or what the market can accept and you're also teaching to help you know feed your kids then i think that's perfection that's about as be- that's about as good as it's going to get you know and I mean, you probably just described the life of many very well-known artists yes know? i know that because a lot of them are my clients yes I've, i mean i can't reveal who they are but you know chances are you heard of them if you know about this area and I mean I'm hoping that that I I worry sometimes about saying that because you know I think there's a myth out there that you achieve a certain level of success and then you kind of don't need help anymore and I don't think that's true because as I said success brings with it its own problems and a lot of the time it's uncharted territory but but also you know and again speaking from my own creative practice you know I'm a writer and a filmmaker And I have spent the majority of my life making films and and writing. And sometimes you want to have a bit of a break from that. You can't just exercise that muscle all of the time. I consider myself to be better at those things because I've also spent a significant amount of my life teaching other people how to do those things. And every time I stand up in front of a group, I don't get to do it anymore. But when I used to stand up in front of a group of people and say, now we're going to construct a script. My own scripts would improve because of that conversation. Yes, exactly, exactly. I totally agree. And I, I speak to a lot of artists that are teaching art mm-hmm. and they all say to me how much they learn about their own you know, field by teaching. Yeah, absolutely. And mm-hmm. that is actually the primary way that most people support their practice. But, I mean, there are lots and lots of ways. You know, we... Uh, Uh, Around here, we refer to it as the unicorns and the workhorses. 
you know, that everyone running a business, regardless of what kind of business, needs to have multiple ways of making money. You know, as I always say, even cafes don't just sell coffee. The ones that do don't tend to last very long. So a business of any kind needs to have a diversity of income around range of different kinds of things that they sell. So if you're in creative practice, you also need a range of different kinds of things that you can sell because that's the best way to make money. So of all of those different kinds of things, of all of those different kinds of creatures, if you like, in your stable, some of those creatures will be workhorses, you know, who can do the heavy financial lifting, if you like, the teaching or the consulting or the whatever it might be, waitressing. Um, and then some of those things will be unicorns, which are a bit more magical and fabulous and spiritual. And, you know, maybe they don't lift any heavy financial loads, but you kind of have to have them too. So we're always mm. encouraging people to have a good combination of both and to make sure that you love them both. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Mm. Well, where do people go wrong there? By choosing workhorses that they hate yep. um, and not wanting to spend any time with them and not wanting to actually develop them and grow them so their workhorses get all spindly and weak and weird looking which means that they're not going to be able to lift anything heavy and become essentially useless yeah and the other biggest mistake that people make is having inappropriate expectations of their unicorns unicorns are not supposed to do any heavy lifting they're just supposed to be magical and fabulous um to continue with the analogy it is possible for unicorns to make money a lot of my unicorns have made money but i didn't expect them to Mm, I didn't need them to, yeah, and they didn't make money until after I'd finished working on them, and it was always a surprise. Well, that that I love, I love your analogies. I think I think that's such a. Uh, I have so oh, many I of them. Away. I have so <laughs> many of them. <laughs> oh well, you can throw some more out. Wait, that's great. Work. Oh yeah. Okay. Great. Great. <laughs> so, you know, we're talking about the sort of mistakes that that people create in the creative world could make around those things what thinking back to our business heads um and as small business people which we acknowledge we are as in the creative world what do you think the number one business mistake is for for artists or other creative hmm. people the biggest mistake that's a big call um I'm going to actually ask for two biggest mistakes if I can. And they're kind of connected. The first biggest mistake that most people make is thinking that they should just know this stuff and giving themselves a really, really hard time for the fact that they don't know this stuff. And I can absolutely guarantee you that if you have studied your creative practice to any level of professionalism, chances are you did not receive any small business instruction or training as a result. Or if you did, it wasn't real world and practical. It Mm might have been more about arts management or it might have been taught to you, you know, by, you know, an academic with a full-time job, which meant that it kind of wasn't even really real. Um, You know, so I don't know how to drive a tractor. I'm not giving myself a hard time about the fact that I don't know how to drive a tractor because I've never been taught how to drive a tractor. And I'm reasonably sure that, you know, given my life experiences should I need to drive a tractor and I learn how to do it I'll probably be able to so Mm -hmm. really you know it's it's none of the things that we're talking about here are um impossible to learn some of them are tricky and a lot of stuff about business 
isn't communicated in a way that creative people understand easily. Right. Uh, so it, it can sometimes be just, you know, the information that you need is there, but it's in dense, boring text that doesn't have any pictures or interpretive dance attached to it, which is a right. problem. Um, <laughs> most of us in the arts, we prefer a bit of entertainment to go along with our education. And so if there isn't any entertainment value, we just go, this is boring. We're bored. So, yeah. yeah. And it, so the business stuff that you need to know, it's not impossible to learn. It's just really boring, super boring. Okay, so, that, so the number one mistake is that we assume or we feel ashamed even that we don't know and we sort of either balk yeah. that or we avoid that or we don't. Yeah. We, we think that we're idiots. Yep, yeah. Right. We think we're idiots because we don't know how to drive the tractor. Okay. What's the so second? Really, you said there was two. There was two really key mistakes yeah. that you think. So the second the one is yeah. that most people don't prepare for success. Ooh, nice. Most people prepare for failure. So once they decide that business is a thing that they might have to learn, or they launch themselves as freelancers or small businesses, then they prepare themselves for that to not work. And that's good. You should prepare yourself for things to not work, you know, plan for failure, but also prepare for success. Have another plan for what happens if this does work because Mm -hmm. most people don't have that plan. They have the, well, what will I do if this fails? Well, if it fails, I'll go back to my waitressing job or I'll, you know, have a cry and a lie down and then I'll just have another go or, you know. And the thing is that, you know, creative people are really, really great at failure. Like we're excellent at it. Uh, We've had lots and lots of experience at it. So, you know, uh, the whole nature of the creative process is try and fail, try and fail, try and fail, try and fail. We're we're great at that, you know. And those of us who have been in practice for a little while have failed heaps, you know. We're we're adept, adept, adept failures we are, you know. Mm -hmm. And we've figured out that, you know, the only way to kind of make this work is to fail and then keep going, fail and learn fail and learn, fail and learn, you know, that's how we roll. But success is completely unpredictable. Most of us have had very little experience of it and it really does knock people sideways. And again, these are nice problems to have, but there's still problems. Yeah. And, you know, so I sort of, I cope with, I help clients to cope with things that probably sound like amazing gifts, which maybe is, you know, lots of money or fame or, you know, a really quickly expanding business and, yeah, those are nice problems to have compared to your startup and failure problems. But, you know, the vast majority of creative people don't know anything about like advanced financial management or, you know, human resources and recruitment or, you know, um, exit strategy and strategic planning. I mean, these are the sorts of things that you need to get good at when your business takes off. And a lot of people just can't cope with that. So that's what I try and help them with. So the, the, the beginning, let's say, emerging artist, mm. are they still needing to think about preparing for success? And at that point, oh, yeah. what are the sort of things they, when you talk about preparing for success, I mean, you talked about some high-level sort of things there. Um, but at that emerging stage, what should they be doing to prepare for success? Making sure they've got enough stuff to sell is a really good yes. start. You know, so I talk to artists all the time who have worked very, very hard to make sure that they have enough work for an exhibition and they've mm-hmm. taken beautiful photographs of that work which they're going to feature on a website, which is mm-hmm. great. This is all great. But then they sell everything 
and they've got nothing left. They can't make prints. They haven't got any capacity to use the intellectual property of that work to, to make it available in other formats. You know, they, they're completely unprepared for what if I sell all of my original work? Uh, then I've got photographs on my website linking to a work that I no longer have and I didn't think in advance about maybe people would want prints and I, I haven't learned about things like drop shipping and, oh, no, I probably could have put, you know, sections of that work on some coffee mugs and maybe had an endless supply of extra stuff to sell, but I didn't do that and now I've sold that painting and it's gone. That's wow. a really good example of it. Um, yeah, that's you know, that's a, another example... Yeah, I mean, I've got a milliner that I um, worked with, was working with a few years ago. And um, again, she worked really hard to make sure that she had a number of hats that could be sold on her website. So she mostly did bespoke and tailored hats and fascinators for clients, but she wanted to do a kind of ready-to-wear line. Mm -hmm. So she made six hats for her ready-to-wear line she had the photographs taken and she had the website built and she had them all ready to go and you could click on the picture of the hat that you wanted and you could order it and it would be shipped to you. And I mm -hmm. said, how many hats do you have in stock? And she said, I've got four of each. Ooh. And I said, uh, okay, you're not ready. And she said, oh, but no one would buy all four. And I said, you don't know that. How long, if, if you sell all four of those hats from the first day that your website is live, how long is it going to take you to make more? And she just looked panic-stricken and said, oh, you know, a month. And I went, well, people aren't wanting to wait a month for a thing that they just bought. You know, you need to have enough stock on hand so that you can, you know, comfortably sell a, a reasonable amount so she downed tools for a bit and um, made sure I think she ended up when she launched her website I think she ended up having 20 of each in stock mm -hmm. um, and she did actually sell out of that within about three months so wow. she, um, she but that bought her enough time yes. to be able to continue to make the stock plus you know then we started talking about internal processes which you have to talk about with handmade goods and how she could streamline things a bit more and yeah, all that kind of stuff. That's what I do. That's what I spend my whole day doing, Felicity, is yeah. looking inside yes. the secrets of people's <laughs> businesses. Like, what's that you're doing? What? What's that? Yeah. Oh, it sounds so exciting. <laughs> That's really interesting. <laughs> I, this is why I have to keep all of my clients we not only do we offer a confidential service we offer an anonymous service so the only oh, clients wow, we name are the ones oh yeah the only clients we name are the ones that have given us permission to name them because some of them would just die if anyone found out that what was in those closets and cupboards yeah that? yeah I, I think we've yeah. all got those little drawers in the studio with stuff well I know I have oh, stuffed in oh, there yeah. so oh, I don't even look in there myself um yeah. this is this is a fantastic conversation I'm talking to Monica Davidson, Director of Creative Plus Business Group, and I know that they can certainly look you up on the internet and find out more about you. You've got a great website with lots of resources and things. But we're talking about, well, I've, I've sort of led us down the path, haven't I, of, of mistakes uh, and classic yeah. mistakes and your a fantastically rich experience of working with creative people and uh, helping them through. So you know a lot about this, this sort of area. I think I've made all the mistakes, actually. Well, too. we both have. We all, I think that's the thing, exactly. And, and that exactly leads me on to the, the next point, which is about mentoring. And, 
you know, you're doing it quite sort of, I suppose, in that space of business stuff. I do mentoring a bit of the business thing, but kind of a, a lot of the other sort of mindset and creative journey kind of mentoring in my Art Activator program and and other bits and pieces. So tell me about what you think the importance of having a mentor would be. I don't think you'll survive without one, to be really honest about it. Um, mm. And I think... I think it's something that you need for the whole of your career. I mean, I still have mentors now, you know, I still, I, st I have a business advisor um, because, you know, every therapist needs a therapist. Uh, and I also have, um, <laughs> I also have two mentors, one for my film life and one for my writer's life. Um, and admittedly, I don't need to see them or talk to them very often, but they're there if I need them to ask questions or just bounce ideas off of or, you know, get some coaching around. Um, I think the first, I mean, I've, gosh, the first person that I would identify as a mentor is my fifth class teacher, believe it or not, because he was the first person who ever said to me that my writing was good enough for me to make a living out of it. Now, I was 11 and he told oh, me this. And he wow. spent an enormous amount of time with me encouraging me to write but also encouraging me to think of writing as a profession um mm. so i'm incredibly grateful to mr roberts thank Hi, you mr. Mr. Roberts. roberts i i have actually hello mr roberts i have actually <laughs> had been gifted the opportunity to thank mr roberts in person after all these years which was very oh cool. that's so um, cool <laughs> uh, i know well i dedicated my first book to him because he was the one that said that I could do that, so I did. And then I, well, I promised him I would. I don't forget that's, these things, you know. Oh, I mean, I don't, I've forgotten where my keys are, but I, I remember the important <laughs> things. Like, remember the know, great five experience. Stuff, that, yeah. stuff. That, that all stays in there. Um, I, um, yeah, I have sought out mentors all my life, you know, yeah. and I think probably that's partly because I've had very supportive parents my mother in particular is my biggest fan um she's she's not been in a position to be my mentor because she's not an expert in my fields but she certainly showed me that it was okay to ask dumb questions and it was okay to lean on people and ask for help when you needed it and there was no shame in that so I've I've always done that and will always do that so I think it's vital I don't think I'm really really hoping that the day doesn't come where I wake up and know everything Mm. I don't want that day. I I want to always be learning and trying something new. And now my one of my you know most valued um, advisors is fifteen years younger than me, mm. but she just knows stuff about things that I don't know about. So it's got nothing to do with age, as far as I'm mm. concerned. It's about experience and the ability to communicate that experience in a supportive way. That's fantastic. I'm really glad you made that point that it's an ongoing experience um, of having mm. being a mentee, uh, having a mentor and having them in different areas. And I, I too, you know, I have a business coach. Um, business wasn't my area and I want want to just check I'm on the right path and I want to learn more and I want to feel that support. So there's that and then there's creative, you know, artists that are sort of further down the track from me and, you know, I love that kind of mentorship. So you're absolutely right saying it just mm. goes on, doesn't it? I think it yeah. certainly it feels... For me, it feels very lucky to be in the position to offer back 
something, you know? Well, that's what I was going to say. You know, I, I really encourage people, even young people, you know, seek out a mentor, but also seek out someone to mentor. We're not going to get anywhere if it's just we're just looking up the ladder, hoping that someone will help us. You know, even if you're 18 or 19 years old, you've got a bit more life experience and you know stuff that a 16-year-old doesn't know. So I don't think it's ever, you're never too young to start mentoring someone else, you know. So, I mean, I, I teach at a couple of different universities. I teach entrepreneurialism and I'm always saying to them, you know, yes, I know you're only in your third year of university, but to some kid in year 10, you're a superstar. You got where they want to be. So, you know, pull the hand back down the ladder as well. You know, we have to keep helping each other up and we, we also have to keep helping each other up regardless of gender or ethnicity, you know, I think seek out mentors of, you know, both male and female and seek both male and female, um, you know, protégés to, to help because mm. that's the only way we're going to get anywhere. Uh, I think that's, that's a fantastic point. And, you know, one of the things that I often talk about um, both in my Art Activator program but on podcasts and, and blogs and all sorts of things is, is uh, this thing about investing in yourself and learning the how to invest in oneself um, and the importance of that and what happens when you don't do it and what happens when you do do it. And, yeah. you know, involving a mentor or several mentors um, to have on your side is often about choosing to invest in yourself. In oh, yourself. absolutely. And it's lovely to be asked, yeah. you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's just a real, it's a real honour, yeah. And I, I obviously work as a professional mentor and advisor but mm. um when i have time i'm also mentoring a couple of young women filmmakers well young they're younger than me so i think of mm. them as young uh, but i you know they are all um i suppose their defining feature apart from the fact that they're all women is that i would i consider them to be sort of plucky outsiders um, mm. and i was a plucky outsider when i started in the screen industry you know i, I didn't come in through the traditional ways and so one of my, um, one of the women that I'm helping has a disability, which she needs to work on is a single mum. So they're not, they don't have access to the same means as someone with more privilege does. And so they just need someone to go, no, 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 you can do it. Suck it up, princess. Let's see how we can figure this out together. And I think that's really important. That's beautiful work, Monica. That's fantastic. Tell us a little bit about, I mean, you, you've mentioned that you come from a film background. Um, I know you have a, a master's and this sort of crosses us right back to the beginning of our conversation in a sense about um, equality. Yes, um, my famous yeah. master's degree. <laughs> Tell us about your, and I know you don't call it a master's a degree. Um, no, I believe no, you're a, no. what is it, a mistress degree? <laughs> A mistress degree, yes. Well, as I always say to people, I have a spinster's degree in film and communications and a mistress's degree in screen <laughs> business uh, because the focus of my thesis ultimately was about gender inequity in the film industry and the impact of what's called uh, covert or unconscious bias. So mm. unconscious bias is the process where people are discriminatory towards women without actually realizing that they're doing it 
And the sad thing about unconscious bias, two sad things. One, it's unconscious, so people aren't aware of the fact that they're doing it. And two, it's practiced by both men and women equally. So, uh, and a master's degree or a bachelor's degree is the perfect example. It sounds really small, but a bachelor is an unmarried man and a master is a man who is good at something. So I have no choice but to name my two qualifications after a male, you know, title. And I have got the shits with that, Felicity, and I don't want to do it anymore. But I'm also trying to make a point. Obviously, referring to a spinster and a mistress is not an equitable exchange for a bachelor and a master. You know, those two things are immediately sexualized and not particularly um, flattering. So I will proudly proclaim to anyone who will listen that I have a mistress's degree. And if you don't like it, you can shove it up your ass. <laughs> Ah, oh, we love we love a bit of direct talk on this podcast. <laughs> she said I was. Felicity said I was allowed to swear. I, I did say you're allowed. She did ask me to say it. Can I swear? I, I, I do. Okay. I am a fan of salty language, so you know you uh, were getting thinking yourself. Yeah, I was. I, I, I did leave the door open there. You're absolutely right. Okay, so spinsters, bastards, masters, mistresses. Yep. Let's tell us, yep. tell us what you actually did. What What were the? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's yeah. a good point. Uh, and by the way, also, that's what the flags behind me are for as well. This is one of my ways of challenging unconscious bias. You know, as I always say, yes, I am bossy, but that's because I'm the boss. So, you know, gotcha. uh, but yes. So I start, like I said, I studied gender inequity in the screen industry because at the time that I started writing my thesis, which was in 2012, um, the numbers of women, particularly in creative leadership in screen, were diabolical. So, you know, to put, to put it into sort of context, more than 80% of what you watch when you go to the movies or you turn on your television, more than 80% of that is made by men. Mm. In that it's produced by men or directed by men or written by men or all three more than 80%, and it's actually worse in television. So given that women make up half of the audience, we make up half of the number of people actually working in the film industry, we make up more than half of screen uh, program graduates, why is it that 80% of the stuff that is being watched is made by men? It just didn't make sense to me. So that's, and it has never made sense to me. It's something that I've been looking at for the whole of my career. Actually, as part of my spinster's degree, I also wrote a mini thesis on the same topic, and that was in 1990. So in 2012, to be looking around for something to write about for my postgraduate, I was absolutely horrified to find out that the stuff that I've been writing about 20 years ago was largely unchanged. So that it required some attention. And um, it's certainly, I mean, it's, it's yeah, very similar statistics in the art world um, when you look at representation. Oh, no, they're exactly the same. Exactly. You know, what was that? The gorilla yeah. girl said, yeah. Yeah, that's I love what the gorilla really... girl said. You know, the only way to get into the Tate is to be naked. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's right. I did too. Look, it's a, it's a real area that obviously I'm very passionate about too. But what what I'm curious about because you you're someone that's really spent such a lot of your career and time and energy and thought around this, and maybe you don't have the answers yet. But what what at this stage of what you've understood about that inequity, why do you think that is that? 80% that you, you, you've mentioned there, what, what, is, what are the, the kind of 
key obvious things that are caused that have caused that it's only got one cause gender discrimination that's it it's it's not complicated at all the reason that women aren't advancing as far as they could be is because they're being discriminated against you know once a woman leaves her academic life because if we're talking about school and and you know undergraduate studies or anything like that women are on an equal footing once women leave that environment they they fall behind male peers almost immediately and they lose steps with every step mm. so there's a lot of reasons for that but to go back to what i was saying earlier about my hiring practices it it in simple terms it has to do with this thing that we call the meritocracy the idea that in order to get ahead all you have to do is have merit and you will be recognized for your abilities now that's why women do well in school women do well in school and they do well in the public service because in both of those environments merit is clearly outlined it's very easy to find out how to do a good job what constitutes a good job what things are going to make me do well in school how am i going to be able to advance the ladder in the public service because it's fair and it's explicitly fair the rules are set so that everybody can understand what merit is and body has a more or less equal shot at acquiring merit but once you get out into the so-called real world those rules are much much harder to find and a lot of the time there aren't any and so then you have to ask the question if this is a meritocracy who decided what merit is Mm. who decided who decided what constitutes merit okay who decided what are the elements that make us some of us you know more meritorious than others and mm. generally speaking historically speaking the people who have decided what constitutes merit are blokes right right so that's part of the reason why unconscious bias is so dangerous because there's been numbers of studies so one of the most famous studies into unconscious bias is an orchestra in America that I can't remember the name of. They had a very low representation for female musicians and they wanted to try and find out how um, important unconscious bias was in the audition process. So they started having blind auditions, which meant that when a musician was auditioning for the orchestra, they did so behind a screen. So they couldn't be seen by the audition panel. They could only be heard and they found that the numbers of women who were being hired shot up exponentially once the gender of the musician couldn't be heard. But wow. it didn't reach equality until they made one interesting observation. And that was when people came in for their audition, they still had to enter the room and sit behind the screen. Now, what they looked like was obscured, but the sound of their shoes could still be heard and when the sound of high heels was heard that person was less likely to get a job ah, it's extraordinary it's extraordinary so once they actually had weirdly once this orchestra had blind and barefoot auditions they hit gender equity pretty quickly that's what i mean about unconscious, unconscious. bias that's an actual meritocracy because an actual meritocracy for an orchestra should be who plays the best, not mm. whether or not they're wearing heels. 
Oh, that is a fascinating study. And and you said there's, there's a number of studies like that. Oh, so many of them. I know. I mean, my thesis was very depressing in lots of ways, but, oh, my God, so illuminating. Revealing. And it changes everything about the way I run. My, yeah, it changed everything about the way I run my business and the way I even conduct myself in the world. You know, one of the other fascinating and somewhat painful experiences is the unconscious bias that comes with walking down the street because mm-hmm. women will get out of the way and men won't. So mm-hmm. I no longer get out of the way. Mm-hmm. How's that going for you? It's painful. It's painful. I mean, I'm sturdy, you know, I'm tall, sturdy woman, so I can, I can hack it, but I literally get slammed into all yeah. the time. And I'm not deliberately trying to bash into anybody. I'm just not getting out of the way. And the wow. people who slam into me are always middle-aged men. <laughs> wow. Wow. So sort yourself out, lads. Sort yourself out. If you see me coming, <laughs> get out of the way. I'm a princess. This is my street. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, I, I, we know, don't we, that this goes to language, um, yep. you know, body language as well as, you know, choice of words, all of those sorts of things. Such Everything. an interesting area. Such a, you were so way. ahead of your time, actually, weren't you? With your, oh, God. Oh, well, <laughs> your undergrad as well. I, um, my sister's doing it. Oh, well, I mean, I, I'm totally laying all um, responsibility for that at the feet of my beautiful, wonderful mum, who never, ever, ever made any comment about the fact that I was a girl. Mm. Never. The fact that I was a girl was one of the least interesting things about me as far as she was concerned. She never used, you know, um, any kind of judgment words like tomboy or... We never had a conversation about whether or not I could do things because I was female. You know, apparently my vagina was not going to be an issue with pretty much anything that I wanted to do. So, you know, by the time I exited that incredible environment and like went out to take on the world at the age of 18, any time anybody expressed any kind of judgment around me because I was female it was literally a foreign language to me and all I and I just was like well what is wrong with you okay yeah there are some physical things that I can't do because I'm a chick but they're not going to restrict me from doing everything else that I want to do and again let's face it most of the things I mean again working in the screen industry you're talking about an industry with a lot of heavy tech um you know, I've never met a piece of technology I couldn't, you know, conquer it with some help. And I can lift 10 kilos, you know. Mm. I mean, I've had three children. I can lift mm. 10 kilos of squirming, screaming toddler. After no sleep. So I can absolutely, yeah, I can totally lift 10 <laughs> kilos with the lights. Yeah. <laughs> you mad? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's so inspiring. Oh, that, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. It shouldn't be. But no, it shouldn't be, but it is. It is. And I hope it is for, for lots of our, our female listeners, which I know there's many Thanks. of the you know, fantastic listeners to our podcast. Just so we're rounding up, but I'm, I'm thinking about the time of the year that, that we're speaking and we're close to International Women's Day. Yeah. Uh, yay, I know. And I'm wondering, well, I guess I'm, I'm wondering how you might mark that in your business if you have anything that you do um, to celebrate that. would be I'd be interested to know. And, and just any of your thoughts about um, International Women's Day and what you see happens and what you think should happen and what you like happens about that? Well, I'd like it to be marked with a little bit more festivity, to be honest, you know. And I'd really love, what I love is to live in a world where men 
were just as enthusiastic about International Women's Day as women are because, you know, the things that we've been talking about, like gender bias and all that sort of stuff, it's not a women's problem. This is an everyone problem. And there are lots and lots of men out there, you know, my husband included and, like, men that I know, men that I work with and who work for me, who are equally distressed at the situation and not because they have a wife or a mum but because they can see that great people are being discriminated against for no other reason than their gender, you know. So I think that, you know, the marking of International Women's Day needs to become something that every business does and that everybody embraces and we will be marking it here, yes. So we're marking International Women's Day with cake and champagne. Yes. I like those two things. Uh, And I've been invited to numbers of functions, which is very nice. And one of our clients is an organisation called Dame Changer, who are mid to senior level women working in the screen industry. Uh, Mm. And their particular focus is on helping women who are also kind of mid-career to Mm. smash the glass ceiling and take that next step. Because this, you know, really in terms of gender bias and inequity for women in screen, it tends to happen more to senior women than to emerging women. So they're hosting an event in the evening that we will be attending in all of our finery. Oh, fabulous. Fantastic. It's great to, to hear there's some things like that happening. And um, I, I certainly hope that, that uh, if you are listening to this and it hasn't yet gone the 8th of March, um, wherever you are in the world, that, you know, you may think about how we could celebrate that more, um, despite where you are, who you are, what your gender is. <laughs> and yes. um, Make sure you uh, walk down the street um, and take up lots of room on public transport on International Women's Day as well. Okay, let's do that. Let's all do that. Yeah, yeah. that could be interesting. Um, Monica Davison, it, it is fabulous to, to chat to you. I've really, really thoroughly enjoyed that. And, um, again, people can chase you up by, should they just look at, what's the best website to go to? Creativeplusbusiness.com. Creativeplusbusiness.com is where you will find me and all of our resources. And we have an enormous amount of material for free that you can just download and look at and video. And it's just, it's really comprehensive. So. That's, that's fantastic. And, um, you know, again, we really appreciate uh, your fantastic insights and experience um, in all of the things that we've talked about today. It's really enormously valuable, and I know the listeners are going to thoroughly enjoy this episode as I have. Thank you so much, Monica. Uh, happy International Women's Day for the day and for the year ahead. And I certainly look forward to some more kind of collaborations with you um, down the track. I think that would be really fantastic fun to do so thanks again for being a guest on this creative life podcast great thank you for having me happy women's day yay bye bye hello listeners popping in just quickly again before you go it's felicity here and i'm really thrilled to tell you about one of the things i've created for artists called a marketing mini series for artists which is a three-part audio mini training for artists all about marketing because it's often a bit of a tripping point for artists that I see happening um, and I would really love to give you all the resources I can to help you get over that. We talk about overcoming resistance to marketing, uh, a marketing strategy, what exactly what you need to do to have 
uh, an ex- a successful marketing strategy and of course one of my favorite topics about investing in yourself what happens when you do and what happens when you don't so go to the links in the show note for the link to the three-part audio marketing mini series for artists now or you can email my team team at felicityoconnor.com and we would be happy to send that to you hope it helps i look forward to getting your feedback thanks for listening bye for now